Well, as we get started, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Oh, good night. I'm not going to turn around. And uh, we'll get started. I, I have made the mistake of having gum. Can I give this to you? Thank you. Thank you. I love you. But let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll start our morning. Father, we are rejoicing this morning for many reasons. We get to be here, part of the body of Christ, coming together, doing what you have built us to do, to serve you, to worship you, to fellowship together, to build each other up. Lord, to encourage one another. And uh, I know I have felt it this morning, Lord, and I know it's happening, and, and we praise you. This is your plan working itself out, and we are so grateful to be a part of it. Uh, Lord, we're also praising you for the cooler weather, and uh, just watching you control all of your creation is a joy, and it gives you glory, and um, we are impressed. You are terrific. Lord, we pray this morning that as we open up your word, that you would soften our hearts to the truth of your word, that you would realign us to the truth of your word, that we would walk forward from here doing what your word has for us to do, walking in alignment with your will, and rejoicing in that because this is the, the purpose that you have for us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to do that this morning, that you'd be pleased and you'd receive glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have y'all ever looked forward to something? Like, I mean, really looked forward to something. Like something, it's off in the distance. You've told your spouse about it. You've told your family about it. You've made plans. These plans have actually had you change your behavior. You know, you, maybe you changed how you operate each day. You change your diet. You change, you're getting ready for something. You, you start saving money. You're really planning for something. You look for it off to the future. You're waiting for that to happen. You tell your friends at work. You tell your neighbors, this is going to happen. You're really excited for that. Have you all ever had an experience where you're looking forward to something like that? I think of your wedding day. That's a big one you plan for, right? I think of maybe there's an amazing vacation that's coming up, right? Maybe there's a, an opportunity you really want to take. You've been waiting and planning to get there. This morning, we're going to look at the thing we look forward to, the definite article. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, 7 to 11, and it's the return of our Lord. And how does that help us, change us, rethink our plans, all of those things. As a reminder, the, Peter, uh, the, the theme of 1 Peter is, is a hope-filled standing. While we're standing firm through suffering that leads to Christ-exalting walking. A hope-filled standing firm through suffering that leads to Christ-exalting walking. So if you have your Bibles open, we'll read our text this morning. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, 7 to 11. This is his word. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
The theme of our text, which is on the top of your handouts, uh, is live expectantly, live rightly, and live to God's glory. Live expectantly, live rightly, and live to God's glory. And we're going to see that theme worked out over four considerations for the believer. That we live expectantly and we live to God's glory. The first consideration that we're going to look at is live in reality. This is the first seven words of verse 7. The end of all things is near. Live in reality. So you have to ask, you better probably thinking, well, what are the end of all things? What is this? I told you already it's Christ's return, but let's look at it. The word end in English makes you think termination, like the film is over, the semester's over, my day of work is over. In Greek, this word is actually a fulfillment of something. It's an event rather than a time frame. So the end of all things is an event that we're looking forward to, a completion. You can think of it as the path of history that God has set us on is coming to a completion. He's finishing his plan. And then of all things, referring to all that he's created. So the completion of all things, completion of all creation, the completion of all God's purpose is then what? Is near. And this word near is like, is like the idea of, of it's approaching. It's consistently and imminently approaching. So we think about our lives, we think, what am I thinking about? What am I invested in today? What am I concerned about today? How am I thinking about people around me today? Yes, but Peter's reminding his readers who remind yourself, what are they going through? They're going through dispersion. They're going through persecution. They're getting all kinds of attacks for their faith from all over the place. And he's reminding them, remember, the fulfillment or consummation of history is nearly done. It's near your Lord is coming back. Paul thought this when he wrote, I'll just share a couple of examples, out of Romans 13, 11, when he wrote to the church there, he says, do this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul wrote that nearly 2,000 years ago, and he firmly believed with conviction because the Lord has promised he is approaching, he is near, he's coming. We're closer by 2,000 years to that event. Hopefully that encourages you. We don't know how long it's going to take for the rest of the time, and we'll look at that in a second. God's goodness, he's not told us. The Apostle John also wrote of this event, 1 John 2.18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And he also wrote in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's close. When he wrote that, inspired by God, every single word breathed out out of Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. That's our call. That's what Peter's reminding us to do this morning is Christ's return is near. It's approaching. It's close. And we're not the only ones that may have asked the question, well, when? We would love that to happen closer. I, I loved how Chris put it last Sunday. It's like, and if you're suffering for the Lord and even things become to martyrdom, it's like saying, martyrdom, it's like saying, thank you. You just fast forwarded my track 
to heaven. I appreciate that. Just thinking, I'm coming. I'm coming home soon. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, you might turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read a few sections out of that. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus instructs his disciples about this very time frame, this event, and how he wants us to think about it. Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 to 14 is where I'm going to start. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Go back to verse 13 real fast. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. That's our purpose. That's the instruction that Jesus has given his disciples about this whole idea of how do I operate with Christ's imminent return? You endure to the end. Skipping down to verse 36, Jesus continues his instruction. He says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father alone. So if you're hoping that I would give you a date this morning, Jesus said we can't, we don't know. Um, we don't know when that's going to happen. But if you go to verses 46 to 40, or 42 to 46, we get Jesus' well, here's how you should live. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. That's who we want to be. We want to be that slave that when Christ returns, he finds us doing what he's asked us to do when he returns. So how does looking forward to Christ's return impact you? I'm very curious the first things that you think of. How does that impact you, Joseph? Joyful. Excitement. Reassurance. He's coming back. Confident in his words. He hasn't failed us. And he won't. Hope. I think I heard hope come from somewhere in this direction. Yes. Oh, yes, the peace. There will be rumors of wars, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation. Peter's audience receiving this letter are going to go, wow, you're right. This is really hard. They're in the midst of it. How does this shape how we live 
on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Recall what the Lord has said. We treasure it so that when we're in trial, we remember it. And we can have that peace. Someone said something else over here. Focus. Is it not easy to be distracted by daily life? It's okay. We're all friends here. You don't have to hide behind the shield of, no, no, I got it down. Yeah. No, it's easy to get distracted. Mary. Mm. Hundred percent. Twofold. I heard two very important points there. Right? We're aliens and strangers in this world. This is not our home, so we didn't know that and live like that. But also, the unsaved around us. Right? Our family and our friends that we care about. We are expressing all this for our benefit, yes. We are looking forward to Christ's return for all those things, and you should. But also for the neighbors, and that he's coming back. What else is gonna happen when he comes back other than welcoming him, his own to himself? What else is gonna be finished? The church age. Yeah, and he's gonna judge finally sin, right? You're, you're getting me in pieces. I'm going all the way to the end, right? He's gonna judge finally in sin. Right? He, it's going to be done. So this time that he is being patient with humanity because he desires all to be saved and we have this ministry of the gospel to get out, this is our moment. This is our time. So we should be thinking about both sides of that coin. I wrote down a couple things. Y'all have nailed most of them, right? One of them, steadfastness. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 came to mind. I was looking at this. Paul reminds the Corinthian church, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We live rightly expecting him to come back. We know that he's coming back. We know that justice will prevail. Those moments of frustration when justice does not prevail right now, we don't have to get sucked into that because we know he's gonna prevail. He tells us in his word, vengeance is mine. Don't you worry about handling sin. I have that covered. You worry about following my commands. You love each other rightly. You love others rightly. I'm coming back. This completes the review of our first consideration, which is how do you live in reality? The imminent approaching of Christ's return. How do you live that way? The second consideration we're going to look at is, well, then how do we live with the right perspective? We know that's true. How do we live with the right perspective? And this is the rest of chapter 4, verse 7. It says, therefore, because we're living rightly, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This idea of sound judgment is right thinking. It's, it's defined in the Greek, and it means to be in your right mind. And if you're in your right mind, you're able to curb your own passions, it's the idea of self-control. If you have sound judgment and throughout the winds of change and life that hit you on a daily basis, you'll be able to be control, in control of yourself. You'll be able to think rightly in those moments. That's sound judgment. And being of sober spirit, 
is the idea of being spiritually alert, of being observant, of being ready spiritually. 1 Peter 5.8, we'll get there. I'm stealing someone's text, I know. But it says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know spiritually that it's a battle. If you've forgotten, I remind you, spiritually we're in a battle. Satan isn't sitting on his laurels hoping that maybe it doesn't work out. He's actively trying to hinder God's kingdom coming. Christ says in Matthew 6 to pray in such a way that you want to aid his kingdom coming. So we need to be active and alert and observant, looking for ourselves spiritual care, making sure we're not getting drawn off sides, as well as looking around. These fellow believers around us, how we love each other, making sure we're all not getting drawn off sides. That's sound judgment and sober spirit, but it's for a purpose. Remember the the last part of verse seven, the purpose of prayer. This is why you control yourself, you think rightly, you're spiritually alert. Why? For the purpose of prayer. To pray rightly requires right thinking. It requires you to be calm and collected both in your thinking and in your spirit. This is the most powerful weapon we have to live this life the right way with the right perspective. I want to take you back in time to 2 Kings chapter 6 so you can see this thinking happen, this power of prayer. This is Elisha. In the context of what's happening is the king of Aram was warring with Israel and he was taking his armies and trying to fight Israel. And Elisha kept, because God told him where he's going to be coming, Elisha kept telling the king of Israel, no, no, move here, move here, move here, you'll be out of the way. The king of Aram got so frustrated, he heard there was, oh, it's Elisha the prophet that's telling the king of Israel where you're going to be. So instead of playing that game, he just says, sends an army to where Elisha is. So I'm going to take that guy out. And that's where we pick up in Second Kings chapter 6, verse 15. It says, now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he, Elisha, answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Elisha trusted the Lord. He was under control. He wasn't reacting severely and and panicky because there's an army of chariots and horses surrounding the city that he's in. He depended on the Lord. He prays to the Lord. And the Lord provides in the way that the Lord was going to provide in that time. That's the power of prayer. James references the same reality of the importance of prayer in the believer's life. This is James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. This is closer to our current reality. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 
And then there's a story of Elijah in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Do you all see the consistency of prayer in a believer's life in every situation? That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's our most powerful force. The commentator Kissmacher says, prayer is the basic requirement for a Christian who desires to lead a life that is pleasing to God and man. Through prayer, the Christian first establishes a vertical link with God before he fuses a horizontal link with his fellow man. It's our most powerful weapon. I encourage you to rethink however you think about prayer and elevate that to wherever you had it before this morning to much further down the line towards the most powerful weapon you've possibly got to live this life. This is where we commune with God. This is where we, we dwell on his word with him. This is where he instructs us and reminds us of his word. This is where we, we praise him. We pour out our heart's concerns before him. This is where we, we supplicate. This is where we ask. This is where we confess sins, where we give thanks. In short, this is a position of dependence on the Lord, which is what he's told us to do. Be dependent on me, I will provide. Trust me, I will provide. This is how believers can suffer with joy in the midst of trial and persecution of any kind. If they are dependent on the Lord, they're right thinking, they're sober spirited, and they're dependent on the Lord. Paul in his letter to the Philippians highlighted prayer Around this perspective, these verses are very familiar to you. Chapter 4, verses 4 to 7 of Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's praise. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near, reminding of the imminence of his approaching. In verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And you all know this one. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the power of prayer. That in a life filled with variance, in a life filled with trial, in a life filled with joy, in a life filled with blessings, how can you stay consistent? How can you stay steadfast? Prayer. What are the things that we bring to the Lord in prayer? It's a question. All things. You went with the all. That was really good. That's like Jesus in Sunday school. All, yes, that's really good. Some maybe derivations of all. Gratitude, thanksgiving. Our anxieties. Our health issues. Petitions. Yeah, financial needs. How do I make a decision? Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I take that job? Right? In this real estate market, do I sell my house? What do I do then? You know, it's, it's, yeah, all of those. All of those things are important. What happens to your outlook on life when you're faithful to do that? Peace. You have confidence. Your hope is there. We come close to God like that. We see his will. And he reminds us of what that is. And we come into alignment with it. Is that not the right way to live life? In alignment with God's will for your life? We don't know what the day-to-day -day is. He hasn't revealed that. He has told us how to live. 
So when we ask that question, what is God's will for my life? That is very clear. And talk to God at the same time. Yeah, Wade's talking about for the recording is like it puts a stopgap in your pattern of thought that leads to sinful behavior, sinful thoughts. Right? When you're tempted and you continue running down the path of temptation, you lose, done, foregone conclusion. You were tempted by the lure, you're a fish, you took the hook, you're done. But when you start praying and you depend on the Lord in those moments, our will aligns with his will and we come into that perspective you can't do both at the same time. We're pretty cool. God has made amazing creatures that have amazing brains. We cannot do active thinking in two different spots at the same time. He knew that when he made us. So when you have a habit of prayer coming alongside, fighting sin and temptation becomes more possible. Victory is real. And then it turns into praise because you realize that, hey, and you start praising the Lord. Prayer is our most powerful of all weapons what keeps us from adopting a consistent attitude of prayer? And yes, I know if you ask any group of people, any believers about prayer, it's kind of like, oh, he's asking the hard questions. That is true. But what keeps us from having a consistent attitude of prayer before the Lord? <laughs> Ourselves is completely true. Yes. Because we're thinking what? I think I got it. I'm fine. It's not bad enough yet. We look like the world. We feel like the world when we're like that. Yeah. Busyness. I don't have time. This is all in the list of bad excuses. If you're looking for excuses, this is a list of bad excuses that we're generating here. Just being up front with you. Those are the things that keep us from doing it. But if we remind ourselves what is God's will, that he, we commune with him that we come to him, that we pour out our souls before him, if we remind ourselves of that, our prioritization of the event changes. What we're talking about is not can I, do I, or is it possible? We're talking about have I prioritized it? We do what we prioritize. If you spent a day doing whatever you did, it's because you prioritized it. We just need to prioritize prayer. We know it is the most powerful thing we have, weapon we have to live a life before the Lord that's pleasing. It's our opportunity to reflect on that and find where am I and what opportunities do I have to adjust so I can closely commune with God more often. That finishes probably to y'all's hope, our second consideration, which is how do we live with the right perspective? So let's move on to our third consideration, which is how do we live with the right activity? These all build. If you're living within the right reality that Christ is returning and you're living in the right perspective by prayer and sober judgment or sound judgment and sober spirited, then you're going to live rightly. This is verses 8 and 9. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. The above all is the, the highlighted neon sign of this is really important. Above all, if you're going to live, live this way. Live in reality of Christ's return. Live guided by prayer. And then these actions must follow. I split verses 8 and 9 
Verse eight is the right kind of love. The right kind of love. This is how we treat each other, by the way. This is believer to believer. And it describes it as fervent. We've seen that word multiple times in this epistle. This fervent, to remind you, is this stretching out to reach for something in full stride. I always see a cheetah on the plains, just full extension, going for it. Um, that is that idea. And it's that idea that that's how it should feel to people receiving our love. Like, yes, that person is loving me to their fullest capability. And it should feel that I'm putting everything into loving my fellow believer. Is how that should feel. That's the right kind of love. It must be fervent. And Jesus set a standard when he says fervently, um, Peter wrote, fervent in your love for one another. Jesus set this standard for us. What is this love one another? Everybody at this time knew Love your neighbor as yourself. Believers knew that from the Old Testament. It was very clear to them. They knew that. But Jesus in John 13, 34 changed the standard. He upped it. John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That would have been puzzling. Like, well, yeah, we know to love one another. How is that new? And then he changes it. He says, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He changed it. What's, difference between, what's the difference between love your neighbor as yourself and how Christ loved sinful man, loves, current, present? What's the difference? I heard two at the same time. I started, I, go here first. He laid his life down. And then, Kathy? It was unconditional, right? He laid his life down. It's unconditional. Keep going. What else is different between love your neighbor as yourself and the way Christ said, even as I have loved you. Pardon? Some do not love themselves. Yeah, the standard is we're saying, well, how did you love me? I'm going to adjust and we're going to figure that out. But Christ loved us in a way that was his own standard. Well above that, he laid his life down. He didn't just do that. He did more than that. Think Hebrews last Sunday. What else did he do? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Go further. He did more than that. He paid for sins that weren't his to pay for. He took away God's wrath. That's our Savior. That's who he is. That's loving someone. That's the same standard that he set for us. And we know that to be true because what's the next phrase in 1 Peter? Because this kind of love, this fervent love for one another, it covers a multitude of sins. This is believer to believer. This is us in this room. It covers a multitude of sins. You're going to get your toes stepped on. Someone's going to offend you. Someone's going to say something that gets back to you. That's called gossip. It's going to happen. And it shouldn't. And that's going to hurt. Sin happens, but the love that Christ has for his people covers a multitude of sins. That word cover is the same word for pardon. It's the same word for pardon. And this idea that you complete forgiveness, where you walk away from that event, you know you've covered it. Either you've, those two believers have worked it out and forgiveness has been extended and repentance has happened, or it's covered. It's pardoned as if it didn't happen. Ephesians 4.32 helps us have conviction behind this idea. It supports this standard of forgiveness because the standard he gave for forgiving one another was just as God in Christ also has forgiven you that you forgive one another. Lest you get caught up in yourself 
and think, well, you know, that was really a painful assault. I, I don't, that, that offense hurt. You go back there, you say, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Like, yep, I, there's nothing that I can't forgive. And then if you really wanted my math friends, you go to Peter asking Jesus, how many times must I forgive? Does anybody remember the math formula that Peter, that Jesus gave him in response? Yeah, 70 times seven was the math. 490 if you do it, okay, great. Like, well, I'll just keep a list. No, the idea was exaggerated, I'm gonna let it go. I'm gonna let it go. Love between believers needs to be like that. It needs to be fervent, everything that you have. It needs to meet Jesus' standard of loving one another and it needs to cover a multitude of sins. What happens when we live like that? Amongst the body, what's the outcome? We give glory to God because you're trusting the Lord as someone just stepped on your toes to love them anyway. You're going to praise the Lord because there's only one way you can do that. Yes, what else? Harmony. Harmony. But, and we might invite more fight. And then we're an example to the world. And then we've landed it. We're praising the Lord. We're glorifying God. It might bring more because Satan might fight harder. We'll have harmony amongst another. Why is this body of sinful people different from us outside of it? Why are they different? Why don't they complain against their people at church? When they go to work, why don't they like, oh, these people at church is the worst. Why, why does that not happen? And then it's an example to the world of the gospel being lived out, the life-changing power of realizing your sin before a holy God, repenting of your sin, receiving forgiveness from him freely because of what Jesus did on the cross when he died and rose again. The gospel works its way out in our lives. And if you really wanted to reset your thinking on who am I loving, I'll take you to Romans 5.8 because it, it, it sets you in the right space of who am I loving. You're loving the unlovely, the specifically unlovely. It says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. He sets the standard very directly for us. That's how we love one another, reminding ourselves that this is where we are. And if you love someone like that, then that leads you to then the right actions. Specifically in this context where we are, we're going to look at one, being hospitable. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And in this context, this takes the idea of this love and it goes beyond your normal group of people that you're comfortable with. Maybe your family, maybe closer friends at church, but really it's talking to all believers, including strangers. Hebrews 13.2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. But Peter's recipients of this letter, they were comfortable with this idea of entertaining strangers, of loving people that weren't their normal group of folks. The Old Testament and their, and their society at the time was used to this. In Deuteronomy 14.29, it was even commanded to entertain strangers of your same group. And it says this, it says, the, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand with which you do. 
So it's that same people group. These are their people group. These are people. So in, the, in our context today, you elevate that to now, it's believers, right? And we look for those opportunities to do that. Jesus brought us closer to that in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 40. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. There's our context. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. This is a really important quality of believers and how open we are to the other believers around us and what they need. In the specific context, we're talking about hospitality, hospitality, inviting people in. Whether we know them well, you don't know them well. In that context of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus expanded it into a whole bunch of other items of when people are hungry, when they're sick, when they're in prison, when they're, they need clothing. And that's not an exhaustive list of scenarios. For believers, if we're going to love each other fervently, those actions are going to show up in our lives in one way or another. And how you live that way is really important because he puts on the end without complaint, without grumbling, without murmuring, without being selfish, truly giving. Why? Because you fervently love them. And in Philippians chapter 2.14, Paul reminds them, just as we probably said it or heard it if we're younger and we've said it to our kids, Philippians chapter 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Have you in your life ever been the odd person out in a group? You've ever came into a new group of people and felt like they all know each other and I don't know any of them. I think many of you probably have experienced that. Have any of you then been welcomed in by any of those people? You've gone to a new church and the family there pulled you in. You've gone to a new group at school and they welcomed you in. You get onto a sports team, which I know nothing about, but they welcome you in. That's an important feeling. I think of the, the idea of a college student who traveled away, found a church, jumped in. They don't know anybody. But then those families in the church notice that college student and they pull him in, not just to say, hey, welcome, but they pull him into their life. And they say, hey, eat with us. Hey, what are you doing tonight? Hey, come over. Hey, you're, what are your classes like? Hey, well, hey, spend time here with us. You're not alone. That is hospitality. Have you all experienced that in your lives? That's hospitality. They didn't earn anything or they didn't bring anything to the table to say, oh, yeah, well, we're bringing that one in, that one. Yeah, they got, no, they, they just showed up. That's hospitality. When we live that way towards other believers around us, just think even in our context, what's it, what happens when either you reach out to them or you've been reached out to, to the body of believers? What's the outcome of that? Yeah. 
We're showing them love, comfort. Many of you didn't launch this church. Yeah, you get connected, you get accepted. You join a small group for the first time. Yeah, small group examples, I get it. Yeah, you join a small group for the first time and you're welcomed in. Then you can be open. The body of Christ operates and God receives glory and you are welcomed and your hospitality is practiced and you can grow. The outcomes are amazing. The outcomes are amazing. I hope that's what we're experiencing is that kind of hospitality. All right, we have a few minutes left. We finished our third consideration. We're going to move to our fourth consideration, which is living with the right motivation. This is verses 10 to 11. Living with the right motivation. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, and whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Why? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As each one has received a special gift, that word receive, what tense is it in? Grammar question, quick. Past tense which means you did nothing to get it. The word receive is just to receive. Someone gave it to me. It's been done, and you've done nothing to earn it, to claim it. What did you receive? A gift. You received a gift. These gifts, these spiritual gifts are given, these special gifts are given when you become a believer at the point of regeneration. The Holy Spirit, by measure of faith and to God's intention and purpose for how we're supposed to live in the body, grants gifts. Not talents, not a behavior that you already owned, not something you had with you, a gift that you received, a way to live before the Lord. Romans 12, 6 says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So you might be wondering, well, what are my gifts? Has anybody ever wondered that before? What are my spiritual gifts? Y'all are just so shy because everybody's like, well, yeah, I've wondered. Okay, you're, that's, that was amazing. Si- you know, shyness is not a spiritual gift, but you did practice that. Um, all right, so you might be wondering that. There's, there's a really good way to find out. It, it, it's like this. Start conversing with God in prayer about what your spiritual gifts are. I'm not being trite. Pray to the Lord about, hey, what, where am I supposed to work? What did you give me? What am I supposed to do? How can I participate in the body of Christ and work out my gifts accordingly. Start there. You can review the examples of spiritual gifts in Scripture, like in Romans chapter 12, and see the list. It's not a finite list, but you can see that and go, okay, where might I fit? But the, then the best way, after you're praying about it, you're seeking where you can fit in, is then to jump in and serve. Get into it. God in his kindness, as we live out every other aspect of life, we pray, we make a wise decision, we jump in. If it's right where he wants us, we continue. If it's not where he wants us, through the experience, through feedback, we can shift. And he will nudge us into the right spots. But jump in and start serving in your local body. See a need and fit that need. Stay prayerful throughout that process. Stay seeking, what is my gift? How can I use it? And God will align it to you. He'll show it to you. But it doesn't show up. You won't see it if you're waiting. You won't see it if you're holding back. And the whole purpose isn't about, I've got a gift. The whole purpose is God has supernaturally given me a way that I can serve the Lord, that I can serve the body of Christ around me. And you want to find that because he says next, employ it. 
And that verb employ is really a, it's, it's in the present active participle, meaning it has ing at the end. In English, we see it there as employ in serving. It's employing it. It's expected that it's being worked out. And he says, as good stewards. So how are we supposed to? As someone who is excellent, that word good is really another way to say excellent. And the word steward is a manager, someone who's been given assets to manage. So we see this in scripture a lot. We see that the slave for the master was given control of the household to manage it. Well, that's a steward managing assets. God has given us life. He's given us a new nature. He's given us gifts that we need to manage well and we need to use for his purposes. And then he gives us two examples in verse 11, whoever speaks and whoever serves. The speaking side, it says, speaking as if they're speaking the utterances of God. This is when people teach God's word in all the variations and formats that it's taught. When you're speaking God's word, the intent is you only convey what God has to say. But he pairs it with serving. And this is the Holy Spirit and God being awesomely wise because it's easy to see the overt outside gifts and being humans to possibly think, well, that one may be more special than mine. It's possible. I'm not saying you thought that. It's possible with humans to act like that. But what does Peter do? He pairs it with one of the gifts that you might say was in a current cultural, if you tried to make them hierarchical, lower. But that is not what God's saying. He said, I've gifted you to be whatever part of the body I need you to be for my purposes. Go forth and employ. In the serving example, though, he, and he brings this truth both home, the, the, the two truths, both to one, one particular place. And he says, by the strength which God supplies. Reminding it's not you, it's not me. It's not, hey, I've really practiced something. I'm really good at this now. I've been doing it for a long time. I have tenure in this gifting area. No, it's not that. It's by the strength which God supplies. And this idea of the word supply, um, I, I, love this, I love this study because when you look at it, you get like, oh, the English fails us. The word supply means to lavishly fund. It's not just supply. Or means to furnish abundantly. God's strength to accomplish his work is abundantly furnished within you. You're not alone. It's not your effort. God has abundantly furnished his strength to supply it to you. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13 makes this really clear. Paul writes to them. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is good who is at work, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we work out our sanctification, part of that growth is service. And did you catch the end of verse 13? It's God who is at work in you. Not you that's at work in you. Not, hey, you had a mentor that worked with you. Those are good things. But it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We put forth our max effort, of course, but we depend on the Lord for it. We depend on the Lord for it. That's the way you use your gift well. And then we see the purpose of gifts in that so that. Anytime you see so that in Scripture, you're getting the why. You're getting the why behind it. Why do, did God give us these gifts? Why do we operate like this? So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. And, and this is a doxology. A lot of times you see the praise phrase, the doxology statements at the end of a letter. But that's not always. In scripture, Paul does it too. Romans chapter 11 and other places, he, he, he hits this place where they're just so overcome with how awesome God is that they just have to write praise to the Lord. And that's what's happening. We're not at the end of 1 Peter. But right here, he's just so overcome with, if I live this way before the Lord, I can suffer well this way. It's for God's glory. It's for God's glory. That's why we live this way. We know 1 Corinthians 10.31 Paul encourages the Corinthian church. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything comes back to his glory. It's one of those humbling and freeing statements all at the same time. This isn't for me. I've been, I'm saved. I have a new nature. God's given me new purposes. This is for him to live that way for his glory. And it elevates the standard that we operate to, right, right, to the right spot. We get to end in praise. It's the perfect place to land. So we've covered four considerations of the believer's life. The first one we covered was live expectantly. Jesus is coming back. It's approaching nearer and nearer and nearer. And we hit hope and steadfastness and sharing the gospel. His return is near. The second consideration we covered was the right perspective. Please remember the overt power of prayer. Don't discount that. I don't know what the opposite of discount is, but pour more weight on it. The third one we covered was live the right actions. Remember, it was the right kind of love for someone, practice that with the right kind of hospitality for the believers around you. And then the fourth was the right motivation. All is for the glory of God. My, encourage to you, my encouragement to you as we exit this particular set of scripture is to take this time either today or sometime this week and pick a purposeful moment with you and your spouse, you and your family and review the priorities that you've set in your life. Just look at them. I'm not saying they're bad. Just look at them and hold them next to these four considerations and then prayerfully consider adjusting anything as it needs to be adjusted because God is good and it's all to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you open your word to us and that you give us everything that we need for life and godliness and that you give us who you are in your character and you give us your purpose for our lives and it's a good purpose and you arm us with every strength that we might possibly need to fulfill that purpose. All to your glory. We are so thankful to you. Lord, help us to worship you this morning as we gather together as this body. Help us to live these truths out as we walk from here. And Lord, help us to do all things for your glory at every moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.